welcome to Trash Cannon. Uh, for today, we are going to talk about Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, which at one point was known as Halloween 666, The Origin of Michael Myers. The movie is probably, I don't know, it's not really a natural for the Trash Cannon, but... Uh, it is one of the more infamous sequels of all time, for which, you know, I figure I might as well put it in there. And also, I wanted to talk about a uh, famous horror franchise, so. So, the movie was, believe it or not, actually meant to revitalize the Halloween series after the disappointment of number five and after a general feeling that because slasher movies were starting to tank in popularity at the time, about the mid-90s, that there needed to be a slight shift in direction, still have Michael Myers as a slasher killer, but also add some more depth to it. So uh, the executive producer at the time of the whole franchise, Mustafa Akkad, commissioned scripts for the sixth movie for which he had the idea that there would be like this underlying master plot behind Michael Myers and that the movie would explore his origins and the reason for his ability to survive getting blown up or shot in the eye or stuff like that. So... Various scripts were submitted. Uh, one of them surfaced relatively recently on eBay, of all places, where it turned out that the plot was supposed to involve a, a Ouija board that could... A, a virtual reality Ouija board that somehow looked into the past. Uh, it was also supposed to involve another long-lost sister of Michael Myers who happens to show up in town as a journalist. And uh, Michael Myers is a homeless man who's wandering the streets of Haddonfield unnoticed because nobody had ever seen him with his mask off before. Uh, luckily, or unfortunately, that script wasn't used. Instead, they ran with um, Daniel Ferran's script. Uh, oh, there was also another script that apparently managed to get Donald Pleasance, who had no plans of doing this movie uh, got him on board and it was supposed to be like a more psychological take and apparently the executives at Dimension really loved it and um, it was supposed to be like a instant classic. I haven't been able to find out more information much less whether or not this script is floating around online somewhere but regardless despite everyone loving that script and being in awe of it that was not the script they went with. <laughs> Instead, after going through various scripts, they went with one written by Daniel Frand, uh, which went through various rewrites. Uh, if you do a Google search for Halloween 6, uh, you can... Halloween 6 original oh. script, you can still find that script uh, somewhere. So, um, uh, But first, before we get into the movie, uh, let me introduce my guest. Uh, say hi, Lisa. Hi, Chad. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for being here. And um, why don't we um, talk about... Uh, oh, yeah, first I should probably give give your first full name.
name is Lisa Cavalier, and uh, she is a big fan of the whole Halloween series. Um, what before we get to the movie itself, why don't why don't you talk about your overall view of the series, like what movies, what what you actually think of the post Halloween three movies, or or just your thoughts in the whole series overall? Well, I, I don't know. I love the first one. It still ranks among one of my favorites. It was atmospheric, very simply done, and the heroine, you know, stabs the guy with a knitting needle right in the eye. You can't get any better than that. Well, I, I think it was even after two that it started to go downhill because Season of the Witch, it pretty much had nothing to do with Michael Myers well at all um, right and even the, i mean even the second one which you know took place at you know after laurie strode was taken to the hospital you know it, it had these weird deaths that i don't know just couldn't happen in real life or just the most unlikely nonsense like you know only three hospital staff in a place that size, the power going out, you know, death by hot tub, you know, the head nurse just, you know, being bled to death. Right. And then, well, by number four and five, while I enjoyed them, but they were more campy, straight up slasher films that were just kind of more jokey and stupid than anything else. And I don't know, by the time six rolled around, I saw the theatrical cut when it first came out in the theaters. I was 17 years old, and, you know, it was more the thrill of getting to see the horror movie in the theater mm -hmm. more than anything. It held up, and it kind of didn't. It had the same atmosphere as the first one, um, you know, good setting, good tension, you know, your, your token bout of crazy characters, but... Eh. <laughs> I don't know. By the time I saw the producer's cut, which hilarious, hilariously enough, I think I won at B-Fest. <laughs> so it was very, very bootleg, to say the least. Um, in fact, I think it might have been a VHS bootleg transfer onto a burned DVD. Um, you know, you could really see that 43 minutes that was cut and, you know, watching that and then watching the theatrical release again, it, it just kind of felt very choppy and incomplete. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, the endings were radically different. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, um, well, first I should probably admit that, like, the first Halloween is hands down the best movie in the whole series. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, honestly, my favorite is actually number three. <laughs> Which... You like the jingle, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that helps. And also the um, uh, the villain speech that Cochrane gives, it, it, it stands up with um, one of my favorite villain moments of all time. And, and, and just the fact that it's such a surreal nasty little movie that i don't think could get made today at all um oh no <laughs> yeah it makes me 
makes me like it a lot. But um, I'll and who knows, maybe I'll do an episode on on that one day too. Um, and I think there's been like a newfound appreciation for it, especially as more people know that like John Carpenter and Deborah Hill originally wanted to turn Halloween into a um, anthology series. Of yeah. Films. Um. Which kind of ties into what I'm talking about because um, Daniel Franz, who wrote the script for this movie, he actually wanted to kind of go back to that in a way and just sort of tie Halloween 3 into the into this grand overall story arc that he had in mind. But um, I don't know how he would have been able to do that because the ending of 3 kind of indicates that there was like an apocalyptic wave of child death across the world or across America. But, um, you know, maybe he wants to do a post-apocalyptic anthology. Yeah. You know, (laughs) Michael Myers rises from the ashes or (laughs) from the wreckage, I guess, as he always does. No, that makes me think. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, him and Buster Rhymes, if, you know, various Halloween sequels are to be believed, because there was one point where he was every bit as indestructible as Michael Myers and then New Kung Fu, (laughs) which I thought was widely entertaining, but (laughs) I don't know. Well, you also made me think of um, Mad Max versus Michael Myers. (laughs) That would have been awesome. Yeah, that needs to be made. Um, but to be honest, I never, I, I did see four and I kind of thought of it as like a slightly above average, um, slasher movie of the time, uh, which may, may or may not be saying much, kind of a, kind of a B minus B effort. Um, I think it's that, you know, it's funny. I have two and four on DVD and you know, other than to kind of continue Laurie Strode's story and sort of that post-traumatic stress that she must have been feeling at the very end of the first movie, you know, the second one, like towards the second half, was kind of a useless sequel. Yeah. I mean, four kind of felt more like the proper sequel to the first one. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, they could have shown the footage of, her kind of growing up and trying to get past, you know, what happened to her, having little Jamie, and then, you know, flash forward to the car accident or, you know, whether she faked her death or whatever, you know, whatever sequel you choose to believe. Um, (laughs) And then just kind of go from there. Now, one thing that I thought was kind of interesting, just given the time that Halloween 666 was released, You know, movies like The Craft and Little Witches were starting to come out. So I'm wondering if they were kind of pushing the supernatural themes just based on that sort of trend. And, you know, because as mentioned, the slasher genre was starting to peter out. And I think they were trying to get, you know, push the whole thorn and the cult angle just to kind of, you know, market it a little bit better or show that it's grown with the times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Which course raises the question of whether or not that was a good decision um because the stock uh criticism you find of this movie no matter where you go is that you know michael myers doesn't really work when you give him an origin 
and we could talk about that, but um, as mm. my guest, you are in the perhaps unfortunate position of explaining the plot of Halloween 6, which is difficult. We can just run through the story or what story there is, at least in the theatrical version. <laughs> well, no. no, the theatrical version versus the producer's cut, and, you know, this kind of makes the producer's cut it makes more sense in the beginning, I think. Yeah. Basically, what you have is, you know, you first show little Janie Lloyd. She's now a teenager. She's being wheeled down a gurney. And you think she's being tortured, but she's, in fact, pregnant and about to give birth. Um, she gives birth to a baby. And, you know, she does so surrounded by cult members. Mm-hmm. Now, in the theatrical version, you pretty much just, see her give birth and then you cut to the cult but in the producer's cut you know you see um scenes from the end of halloween five where you know the little girl gets pushed into the van along with michael myers and then you know kind of cut to her being a teenager and you know this baby um you know, from there, she, you know, wants to have the baby, but the cult has other plans. So a midwife kind of sneaks in, you know, tries to sneak her out, but Michael shows up, kills her, and then goes after Jamie and the baby. Yeah. Because he has to kill all of his relatives and all of his family. And, you know, through some mishaps, and the one thing that never made sense to me in any of the movies you know, Jamie finds a truck, manages to drive out, even though neither she nor Michael Myers had ever had any lessons at any time, yet they're mysteriously, you know, <laughs> driving these five-speed pickup trucks. But, oh, you that, know, we'll, we'll overlook that. Oh, that reminds me. Uh, in the, um, I, I didn't read it in depth. I just skimmed over it. But um, in Daniel Fran's original script that you find online, there's a line by Wynn, the uh, the bad doctor that we'll soon talk about, who mm. who says, "I even taught him how to drive." <laughs> <laughs> and I guess she must have sat in on something, or you know, new mom instinct, which I can believe if you know you're desperate and running from a cult with a baby in tow. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> She, you know, runs, tries to, um, you know, use a radio call-in show to try to contact Dr. Loomis, who has since retired and is not nearly as burnt up as he was in Halloween 5. In the theatrical release of Halloween 6, it's not explained, but in the producer's cut, you know, Donald Pleasance makes, you know, comment about, I've had various skin grafts and now I'm happily retired, and then... Mm-hmm. You know, he hears Jamie's voice, immediately recognizes it, and, you know, kind of has a mild freak out that Michael is indeed back, um, at which point he is visited by his colleague, Dr. Wynn, you know, just out of the blue to celebrate his retirement, and Wynn asks him to, you know, head up Smith Grove Sanitarium, which, for whatever reason, he accepts. And meanwhile, um, the Myers house is currently occupied by relatives of the Strode family. Yeah. Um, 
Which, um, oh, yeah, I should probably mention that the, uh, yeah, everybody's listening to the same radio show, the um, Barry, is it Barry Sims? It's Barry Sims, and he's pretty much this shock jock kind of guy. Um, I think they were trying to play on the popularity of Howard Stern at the time. Mm. And, you know, basically this very douchey, you know, basically the kind of guy that you know sexually harasses people in the office, yeah. um, makes these really dirty comments 24-7, even when they're not warranted, and is just very loud and obnoxious. But yeah. um, Setting up his demise. He, he's playing on the fact that Hall- uh, Haddonfield is banning Halloween after mm. the whole Michael Myers debacle, and how, you know, groups of college students are trying to, um, you know, bring it back. Because Michael Myers is dead. What can go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and also I don't I don't want to turn this into a litany of the um, plot holes in this movie, uh, but I, I have to say I do I do love the idea of the Strodes moving into Michael Myers' house, and even better, somehow none of them know that except the dad John. Oh yeah, and <laughs> it's like the wife later goes, "Wait a minute, your brother couldn't sell this house, could he?" And you knew all along. <laughs> You know, in addition to all of his other flaws, the drinking, the emotional abuse, the just general assholery, that's the one thing that, you know, prompts her to realize just what she married. And, you know, that's when she decides to leave. Well, in her Um, defense, it is like the it is like the Tate family moving into a house built over the side of the Manson compound. So. Pretty much. I mean... (laughs) You know, during out this time, Tommy Doyle, who was the little kid Lori babysat in the first movie, um, is all grown up, very shell-shocked, played by a mm-hmm. young Paul Rudd, who goes by Paul Stephen Rudd at this time, mm-hmm. um, and has since become the Ant-Man, and it's still very attractive. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, tight know, shirts. Movie, he's pretty <laughs> watching the house. You know, watching our soon-to-be final girl, Kara Strode, um, played by Marianne Hagen, whom Harvey Weinstein did not initially want to cast because he thought her chin was too pointy, among other things. Oh, but, my God. <laughs> I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, thanks, Wikipedia. <laughs> um, speaking of Harvey Weinstein, yeah, I you got to love that Paul Rudd's character is introduced staring at her through from his window while she's undressing. Of course, because the, nothing about that is creepy or horror movie villainish at all. <laughs> that is our hero. It, it, I mean, when he's not studying rooms and you know, listening to call-in shows, he suddenly picks up a clue that you know, Janie Lloyd is calling from a bus station just by background noise. And now, mind you, he's using dial-up internet to to kind of listen in on this phone call that he recorded. Mm. Um, and then, you know, finds where she hit the baby and, you know, takes him in, calls him Steven and tries to get him help at the hospital. But, you know, when nurses call security, he just happens to run into Dr. Loomis and, you know, makes off with the baby, runs into Kara, somehow convinces her to, you know, 
go back to his room in that boarding house from next door where he's been staring at her, you know, <laughs> Kara and her child. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. that that's one of the big differences is, uh, you know, in the theatrical version, Michael kills Jamie horribly by impaling her. Corn thresher. Corn thresher, that's it, that's it. Um, yep, it's right away, and, you know, it's right after she says she can't, no, Michael, you can't have the baby. He just kind of lifts her up and throws her down on that thing. In the producer's cut, he just stabs her, leaves her for dead, and, you know, goes upon his Michael Myers business, you know, at which time she falls into a coma. And then uh, the man in black, who initially took her baby, kind of pulls the cord on her after she has a flashback of, you know, being raped and presumably by Michael Myers. Yeah, which is... I think I don't think it's even implied in the theatrical version. I think it's just um, uh, it's just um, pregnant. They cut that completely. Yeah, yeah, but in the director's version, it's it's pretty much explicit. I mean, the producer's version is pretty much explicit. <laughs> yeah, and it's probably one of the cringiest moments in the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Uh, it's. Uh, yeah, it kind of comes out of nowhere, and it doesn't really add anything, except maybe... I, I guess they were trying to give Michael some kind of subtext for trying to find a baby. I, I, I don't know. It, it's just really unnecessary. Yeah, and I mean, the only thing it really added was much, much later on, where Kara says, you know, don't hurt the baby, it's yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it. they could have, you know, cut that and let it remain cut, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that it, that it, wasn't needed. And it wasn't in the original script, but I'll go back to that when I talk about it. Um, or I, I don't think it was from what I saw. But also, like, but anyway, the, the whole thing's important because, like, that's the whole reason for Loomis being in the hospital. So if you're going by the theatrical version, he's just, like, loitering in a hospital lobby for no reason. <laughs> Pretty much. And, you know, he, you know, by the sixth movie, he looked even crazier than ever. More so, you know, when his face was burnt up in the fifth one. I mean, they, you know, they try to call security on Paul Rudd, who has a, you know, sickly and injured looking baby in his hands, but not Dr. Loomis. Uh, I don't know. And, you know, he just, it, with the theatrical release, he just kind of popped up randomly and it was just too convenient. Mm-hmm. You know, he was just there at the right time. And I think even when I first saw it, that just seemed a little off to me. However, one thing about the theatrical release that I really, really liked was when they finally took out, you know, Don Strode, the father, the alcoholic, abusive SOB. You know, that his own grandson felt the need to threaten with a knife after he slapped his mother. He goes down to the basement, and there's Michael Myers ready to electrocute him, and his head explodes. <laughs> Producer cut, the alcoholic asshole was only electrocuted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That theatrical release, you know, Tommy Doyle got to wallop on Michael. It got to be a great showdown, but producers cut, he only gets the runes. That's true. So yeah. <laughs> I guess those are like the two improvements in the theatrical cut. 
I mean, the theatrical cut wasn't all bad. The only thing was is that, you know, some important things were kind of cut out. I mean, both to shorten the movie, I guess. But, you know, you took out so many things. Mm. You know, for example, um, in the theatrical release, you don't really see much of a bond, I guess, between Kara and her six-year-old son, Danny, who is, you know, starting to hear the voices um, that Michael supposedly heard, the kill for me. And you kind of have that suggestion that he's becoming Michael Myers or the next Michael Myers. Um, the producer's cut kind of showed more of a bond between the two of them. Like mm-hmm. when he first started having nightmares, she stayed with him. You know, she talked to him and tried to use a nursery rhyme to kind of chase the boogeyman away. Well, yeah. But, uh, and in the theatrical version, they keep a few references to him hearing voices, but in the... But also in the theatrical version, they took out, like, all the times that the man in black actually shows up before Danny. Yeah. Um, So it just renders it incoherent. And it just doesn't make sense for him. It it was like another instance of Dr. Loomis just showing up at the right time Mm -hmm. and without any explanation for it. And then all of a sudden, there's this man in black who turns out to be Wynn. Yeah. Uh, who, I, I can't remember if we mentioned, but when is, uh, Dr. Loomis's colleague who was going to help him, and then he turns out to be the man in black from the fifth movie, and who is tormenting Danny psychically, apparently, in, in this movie. Yeah, just, you know, showing up at the house, giving him voices, <laughs> and, you know, just overall, you know, being this presence that, you know, kind of manipulates the situation in a way, you know, right up to, hey, Dr. Loomis, why don't you take my place at Smith Grove Sanitarium? So, you know, you can be in on where the action is, and here's all the files, and oh, did you know that Jamie Lloyd's body was found? (laughs) Right. And then, you know, all these random people just turning out to be in the cult, right down to the, you know, sweet little old lady running the boarding house, (laughs) and the secretary at the hospital. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just various other people that turn out to be cannon fodder, you know, for the big climatic scene. Or before he's either beaten up by Tommy after getting injected by a corrosive uh, liquid or stopped by, you know, the good runes, you know, depending upon, you know, the theatrical release or the producer's cut. (laughs) Yeah. Whichever one you want to go by. Yeah, because in, yeah, because it's like the, not only is the con- are the conclusions different, but what the what Wen is trying to achieve is different because I think in the first one, I mean in the theatrical version, it's like the cult is just a front for some kind of scientific experiment with evil, and Wen is like trying to breed the ultimate evil for some reason. Um, it's it's not really explained at all. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, even the producer's cut, it's not even that ex- well explained. Uh, I mean, yeah. they're trying to, I guess, pass on Michael's abilities and urge to kill down to little Danny Strode. Um, and then, you know, 
after killing Jamie, they're trying to kill her baby, and that's to be Michael Myers' final sacrifice. They never quite explain what's to happen to him after, you know, he does this, and why it needs to be passed down to this little kid. And... Yeah. Or or that he's not, um... Or whether or not it's just coincidence that Danny is uh, Michael Myers' relative by adoption, basically. Right. Pretty much. Um, And, you know, just the fact that the, you know, last name was Strode, and for whatever unfathomable reason, you know, the grandfather who, you know, died by washing machine halfway through the (laughs) film... Yeah, that's never not going to be weird. But, um, you know, you can't sell this house, so, hey, we'll move into it. Yeah. And then uh, his younger son somehow didn't know about it, but his girlfriend did. And then, you know, makes a point of saying this, you know, while she's being recorded live on the Barry Sims show, after he hits on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, oh, yeah, Barry Sims is deaf, which is probably, uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, getting stabbed in the, you know, getting stabbed in the, 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 in the crotch. Yeah, and the great thing about it is, like, for that death to make any sense, I mean, the producer's cut even adds more detail to that, that, uh, Sims just accidentally got into a van from Smith's Asylum that the yeah called gave Michael Myers, but even then it's like Michael Myers is at the old Myers house and then he goes to where the party is for no reason and then he goes back to the Myers house. And the funny thing is the timing of that's all off too because apparently it's like a little less than half a mile from the fairgrounds Mm -hmm. and you know, let's just say he managed to, you know, either take a van and, you know, park it somewhere and actually find parking, which, you know, on a fairground, you're going to have a hard time doing, especially, you know, trying to do this inconspicuously. Or, you know, walking that distance would take him, even if he were, you know, not doing his shuffling zombie walk, as, you know, he, he and most horror mil- villain horror movie villains tend to do, it would take upwards of a half an hour, you know, to and from. So how is he getting there that quickly? <laughs> I, I don't think there's any special speed cult magic in Thorn. At least there's no mention of it in the movies. Yeah, and the odd thing is, like, they set it up for... Because uh, Sims finds out that, that the Strodes live in the Myers house, and he's going to move his show over there. So they set it up for him to go to the Myers house anyway. So, why? Why couldn't he just <laughs> wait at home, you know? Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh, yeah, and then he, and then Michael Myers somehow in, like, this crowded fairgrounds, he somehow drags Barry Sims's body out, strings it up with Christmas lights and a tree for a little girl to find by having the blood drip on her. <laughs> yeah, like, Sure. Nobody saw that coming. I mean, and this is a, you know, a fairly famous person. And, you know, it's a famous person, you know, coming to a small town. 
and nobody's going to, you know, see him being dragged and bloodied by, you know, Michael Myers, who's supposedly dead. And they're certainly not going to notice him being strung up elaborately (laughs) from a tree, which he will subsequently fall down from his own dead weight. You know, um... But but at least that whole scene did give us what I think is the creepiest uh, thing in either version. The the little girl who she starts singing "It's Raining Red." Oh wait, she only sings in the producer's cut. She just says it in the theatrical. Yeah, I mean she sings it, and then the one, and then she's kind of chanting it over and over again, and nobody's listening to her except for Paul Rudd, who happens to you know see it, but not push the little girl out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, that song is so creepy. <laughs> and I think the only thing creepier is just how often that baby is left alone. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, maybe it's just my becoming an aunt almost two years ago, but you don't leave babies alone, especially, you know, a newborn that's been, you know, kind of traumatized from moment one, you know, taken from mom, running from killers, left in a bus station. (laughs) What's going to happen there when that child grows up? Oh, yeah. I mean, especially if it really is, uh, has like a double dose of Michael Myers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Like at that point, you know, who needs Danny Strode? It's like, you know, you kind of have this traumatized bus stop baby to carry on the Myers legacy. Oh, so awful. Kind of want to call social services on the so-called heroes of the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially, uh, especially Paul Rudd, who, who just gives a, I mean, um, yeah, he just gives like this really creepy monotone performance, and I, I, I've heard, I, I've read interviews where they've, there's a rumor that he hated being on the movie, but I've, I've read interviews that disputed that. Uh, which one's true? I, I don't know, but yeah, he does give kind of an odd performance, and I, but I think it was like a deliberate artistic choice on his part that you know, Tommy was traumatized by the events of the first movie and like his coping mechanism is becoming obsessed with Michael Myers and doing all this research. Right. But what was funny to me is that how did he know about all the cult stuff? Because none of that was mentioned in the first movie. In fact, I think one of the things I liked about it was how simple it was and how he was just this, you know, freakish force of nature. And, you know, it suggested that he had, I, I guess a neurological disorder where he couldn't feel pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the impression I had. And then, you know, you add all these magical elements and I guess suggest that I am powered by Thorn. But, you know, how could he have known that? Yeah. Or, or the what, fact. Mm-hmm. I mean, what would you get from the, you know, Haddonfield police report if there was any kind of weird activity? It was the late 80s. They would have hidden that. Yeah. Or maybe over-publicized it. Yeah, or, or what, what it's supposed to mean in the first place, because we don't really find out. It's like this idea that one child is given the curse, which results in 
it becoming a killing machine that targets its entire family. Um, and that's supposed to somehow prevent, uh, disasters befalling the entire community. Now, I think that maybe if they, if we went through Mustafa Akkad's plan, because there are like a couple of references to how Haddonfield is dying. I think Beth, mm. um, gets a line about that. So maybe if they had gone with their plans for the seventh movie, cause I, um, cause what Mustafa Akkad and Daniel Farrens had planned was that in the seventh movie, it would be even more explicit that the entire town is on it and that there's like this weird town-wide cult and maybe they believe that if Michael Myers, that as long as they pass this curse on, their town would be saved from economic disaster. Uh, which, honestly, maybe it's just my obsession with small towns with dark secret stories. But I actually kind of would have found that interesting, especially, like, in the context of, like, uh, late 90s, early 2000s economic malaise, like, this town trying to battle off the forces of deindustrialization by <laughs> by power of Michael Myers. Um, so maybe I'm giving him too, maybe I'm giving everybody too much credit, but I think maybe that that was what they were going for. I mean, they could have been huge fans of Shirley Jackson in the short story, The Lottery, where, you know, you got that one sacrificial lamb to, you know, be sacrificed in order to um, give the town prosperity. Only in this case, the sacrificial lamb is really the serial killer, just, you know, knocking off members of family and anybody that comes near his house or otherwise gets in his way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I, I like, I, I have to admit, I do kind of like that idea. I, I did like Halloween H2O, so I don't know. I don't want to say that I would have preferred that movie over that one, but I don't know. I kind of like that idea. It's just that if that's what they were going for, they didn't develop it in this movie well at all. No, even in the producer's cut, I mean, to me, the whole Thorn subplot it just didn't even feel that much feel needed. I mean, you didn't really have to explain that, you know, Michael Myers is just, you know, kind of a force. I don't know. That can just somehow not feel pain and chop people up at will or, you know, throw them into <laughs> the wire of a washing machine. <laughs> oh, uh, do you, um, what did you think of the final fate of Dr. Blameless as uh, presented in, this movie, because, like, in the theatrical cut, it's implied... They don't... Yeah. They don't explain a blessed thing in the theatrical cut. He just says, I have a little business to attend to, and then, you know, they drive off, um, you know, having saved the day, and you don't really know what happens to Michael, but you hear all this screaming in the background suggesting that Michael finally got him, mm -hmm. or, you know, he saw something awful. Producer's cut, you know, he finds Michael prostrate after being, I guess, overcome by the runes, although when you last saw him, he was just kind of stopped and unable to move forward from where the, you know, Tommy had placed the rune stones, and then you just kind of find that Michael Myers had the presence of mind to, you know, switch clothes with Dr. Wynn, and then 
magically the symbol of Thorn ends up on Donald Pleasance, which would account for the screaming and the terror. And then, you know, Michael Myers riding off into the sunset or the moonlight, as it were, in fancy man in black new clothes. Yeah. Um, like, the thing about the ending is, uh, I, I know some people have interpreted that Loomis is going to go kill members of his family if he has any, but, like, I kind of think the point was, because, you know, there was all this stuff about when setting him up to be a successor was that, you know, now, cause, because there is, like, a poignant moment where Loomis is going, heading to what he thinks is Michael's corpse and going, oh, it's over, it's all over, it's all over, Michael. Um, and, and that he has, like, this weird sympathy for Michael Myers after all these years. But instead, like, right. when passes on the duty of being Michael Myers' um, handler, I guess? Yeah, handler onto him, so it's like, this is something Loomis will have to carry with him for the rest of his life. And I say that because I read, I like I said, I skipped through the original script, and it's a lot more explicit in that than it is in the producer's cut. Yeah, I, I mean, overall, it just kind of felt a little more convoluted than it needed to be, but still didn't explain it all fully. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there were just some things that felt unanswered. And to me, when I saw it, even when I saw it again uh, fairly recently for this podcast, um, and I thought, why make Dr. Loomis's, you know, Michael's handler? You know, at that point, wouldn't Dr. Loomis say, hey, Michael, stop killing your family. Come back for some real therapy. Right. You know, be a good guy. Yeah. And, you know, Change out of that suit because, you know, Dr. Wynn's threads just aren't you. <laughs> yeah. Go back to the coveralls, my man. Yeah, I, I, I guess that they were trying to leave some stuff unanswered for the seventh one, given everything I read about Mustafa Akkad's plans. But, you know, there's a way of doing that without screwing up your own ending. And from what I saw, the original script actually did do a better job. I should probably uh, explain that the original script that I read mm. actually had a different ending. It ended with the cult succeeding in kidnapping Danny. Um, and Dr. Loomis gets one big showdown with Michael Myers, and the end kind of leaves it ambiguous about whether or not Loomis survives. Right. Paul Rudd and Kara Strode still drive off into the moonlight, but they're heading out to find Danny and rescue him from the cult. But the last scene of the movie, you see that Michael Myers is in the back seat with them, and they don't notice. And that's where the movie ends. So, you know, that's a way better job of setting up a, setting up a clip here than uh, what this movie does, which just leaves a couple of plot threads, which has a proper resolution, but leaves all these plot threads hanging for, for later. So. <laughs> I was just going to say that Daniel Ferran's dissatisfaction with both versions is, is definitely understandable. Right. And I kind of wonder if 
you know, they could have done it that way because, you know, by the sixth movie, as we know, this was Donald Pleasance's last uh, film appearance and it was dedicated to his memory. Yeah. You know, his health was in decline at that point. Could he have done that, you know, final showdown with Michael Myers? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a great point. That probably had a lot to do with it. Although, I, I, from what I understand, the director of the film thought Donald Pleasance's scenes were quote boring. So <laughs> that probably uh, that probably had a lot to do with it, which uh, explains why the director went on to have a successful career directing. Uh, crap! What else did he direct? I don't know. A couple of movies everybody <laughs> talks about anymore. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. Um, oh, it was Skulls 2, I think. This, or the Skulls 2. Gotcha. About the Skull and Bone Society? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, those movies that nobody talks about oh, anymore. Uh, oh, poor Sawa. <laughs> uh, Daniel Ferran's uh, script uh, did it. Was there anything else? Yeah, uh, also it didn't mention, um, again, I didn't read it, but it, it, I don't think it brings up the incest. Instead, what um, the scene where Karastro talks to Michael and gets him to turn on the cult is still there, but she doesn't talk about Michael being the father of Stephen. Instead, she talks about, Michael, what they did to you, they're going to do to my son. And that's what does it. Right. I mean, and that kind of gives more Michael Myers a lot more subtext than just, you know, randomly saying, oh, hey, it suddenly occurred to me that this kid might be yours. Yeah. You know, your little baby sacrifice. And, um, yeah, here's this other little kid who's kind of turning out like you. Turn on this cult and not on us. <laughs> yeah, and in the fat <laughs> theatrical version, it isn't even clear why Michael turns on the cult. He just shows up and starts killing them. Because, you know, they're there. They're cannon fodder. They're running from him. And, you know, despite his, you know, taking his sweet time walking on over there to to each of his victims, he manages to catch up with each and every one of them. <laughs> exactly. Um, A horrible swagger. <laughs> Uh, and, and you um you brought it up earlier, but do you think that a movie that tries to give a deeper motivation or backstory to Michael Myers could work? Or do you think it's just kind of defeats the purpose, no matter how you approach it? Hmm. I don't, yeah. Interesting question. Um... It kind of defeats the purpose a little bit because, you know, the first movie and even, you know, the second movie kind of just shows him as this force, this personification of evil and, you know, the subject of Dr. Loomis's many, many rants. And even in the Rob Zombie movies that, you know, come out 10 years after, you know, Halloween 666, um, they try to give him you know, a little bit of a pretext of being mentally ill, and then that's why he's the way he is. He's not so much a personification of evil so much as he's just crazy, and he had a horrible family life and a random baby sister. And I don't know. 
I, I, I think it kind of defeats the purpose, but at the same time adds a little bit of it. And, and I kind of wonder if that would have been more affected had, you know, the original script from Daniel Moran been produced and not, you know, the theatrical and producer's cut we have today. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, going, I read an interview with Daniel Friend, and it did sound like he was trying to strike a balance between giving more context to Michael Myers and trying to leave some mystery as to what drives him. Mm. And I think some of that survives, but it, it survives to the point where, at least in the theatrical version, nothing Michael Myers does makes any sense. <laughs> It really doesn't. <laughs> I mean, it, they're still great movies. They're, you know, a lot of fun to watch. But, you know, if you overthink some of this, you, you know, it kind of loses a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, I mean, the scariest part of the first movie was that he just seemed to be this force. You know, he just kind of walked in, did his thing, and no matter how many knitting needles ended up in his eyeball... He just... Yeah, I was going to say that uh, Source's um, script did bring in, like, some more of the mystical elements, like uh, like it actually included a reference to Michael's great-grandfather committing murders in the um, 19th century. Uh, and, and that was actually taken from the novelization of Halloween. So, you know, he was actually a big fan of the franchise. So he probably actually was the best person to write this. Uh, which, which kind of makes it unfortunate. But but he was going to leave that there, like little tidbits that there's something bigger going on. But And yet, uh, you don't know the full picture. You get more of the picture, but you don't get the full picture. But I was going to say, um, I... I I wanted to ask originally, like, whether you think the theatrical or the producer's cut is better, but now that I've rewatched them for this podcast myself, I, I think the answer is pretty clear. <laughs> yes, even though there were some parts of the theatrical release, you know, that I think were better improved upon, you know, even some parts of the ending, I thought, you know, a physical showdown with Michael Myers and Tommy Doyle made a little bit more sense than just laying out rune stones, mm-hmm. you know, how that can stop him, you know, after all the stuff that's been thrown at him, you know, you lay down a couple of rune stones and all of a sudden he can't follow you anymore. I know. And, you know, like a couple of little scenes and nuances here and there, but, you know, overall, the producer's cut was way better. It had a more complete picture, I guess, even though there was a lot of, I guess, backstory that I felt really wasn't needed. And it kind of took away from, you know, Michael Myers as this, you know, force and personification of evil. No, he's just a cult puppet. There's, you know, he's nobody's puppet. <laughs> he's Michael Myers. Yeah, in the France interview, I, I watched um, actually address that, too, because apparently his goal was that it was going to be ambiguous, but it was pretty clear that actually Michael Myers is what's driving the cult rather than other way, the other way around. At least that was his idea, um, which yep. would have been interesting to see play out, actually. But uh, 
But yeah, I, I agree. Like, the theatrical cut there, besides uh, Paul Rudd being the one that picked down Michael Myers in a very satisfying way, it also had, like, this moment, and I think that's one of the little moments you're talking about, where he's frantically trying to get through the door, and Myers is getting close, and I... I, I kind of knocked his performance earlier that he probably went too far with the shell-shocked interpretation mm. of the character. But there's, like, this great expression on his face where he's, like, grinning as Michael Myers comes up, but he's also clearly terrified. It's like he has, like, a mini-psychotic break seeing Michael Myers get close. Right. It, it's just, yeah. like, this tiny moment, but it's really good. And it says a lot about Paul Rudd's talents, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and that, that was something you would expect from somebody who's experienced that kind of trauma. I, I mean, he'd have that psychotic break and that drive to defend himself and his friends and, you know, the little baby he adopted. Mm-hmm. You know, the one thing that from the producer's cut that they really shouldn't have added was how that baby came about. Yeah. <laughs> that was horrible yeah yeah exactly yeah giving michael myers uh incest baby is uh, no (laughs) but the other thing too it's like we didn't even get into this but the theatrical cut besides the fact that it renders its own plot pretty incoherent almost random and how it connects different elements and scenes is like it gets rid of the score, which was very classic Halloween, and replaces it with like jagged electrical guitar riffs that sound like they're coming yeah. out of a music video or something. Yeah. Oh, and the chaotic um, cuts, which were made out of scenes that they took out of the film and just sort of turned them into fast-paced, random strobe effect shots with screaming in the background which uh, like I don't have epilepsy but when I was looking at one of those transitions I I just sort of felt my brain trying to shut down it was horrible (laughs) yeah that I I mean there were stories of Pokemon episodes doing that (laughs) (laughs) You don't really need that in an already scary movie. Yeah. You know, unless Kukusu's going to come out and fight Michael Myers, which I think would be a great sequel on its own, but that's just me. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, and yeah, I, I definitely have to recommend the producer's cut over the theatrical cut. I mean, besides those moments that we talked about, it mm. the producer's cut not only feels more like the proper Halloween movie, albeit not a very good one, but it just feels more like a movie. (laughs) Right. I mean, the theatrical version, you know, especially after seeing the producer's cut, you can kind of tell things were slight, not to use a bad pun, but it was just choppy. Yeah. Again, it was very punny, but... (laughs) There's more meat on the bones of the plot, and there's more character moments, and it's just, and the transitions are more, the tra- even the transitions from scene to scene are just more natural. Right. Oh, theatrical release, not even including, you know, 
mid-range in popularity grunge songs could have saved it and god all of that flannel <laughs> or abashedly back then but good god damn <laughs> Halloween sex a curse of flannel <sighs> so much plaid <laughs> uh well uh I think I think that's a good point to to let off unless you have um something to add i i just want to add though that i would love for us to get back together to discuss halloween resurrection at some point absolutely (laughs) which is uh halloween six's main competitor for worst film in the series stiff competition but (laughs) which i have to admit i haven't seen i've seen um youtube reviews slash riffings of it but I haven't actually seen the film, so having the excuse to subject myself to that. Oh, it is a treat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, Lisa, just um, uh, well. Uh, first, let me sign off. I'm Chad Denton, and you can find me on Patreon as Chad S. Chad S. Denton, and you can, of course, find this podcast on Hotbean and follow it there. And you can also find me on YouTube under the show Hollywood Hates History. Uh, and Lisa, tell, tell the good folks at home where to find you. All right. Um, I can be found through my website, creativecatloafer.com, or you can find me at my sporadically updated blog at horrorbunnies.wordpress.com. All right. Thanks for listening, and uh, be sure to join us next time.